You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Romans chapter 4, we're going to begin reading verse 13, and I think I'll read through the end of the chapter. We're not going to get to the end of the chapter this morning, but I'll read to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. I think everyone's found their place. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inheritor of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. And the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of this sacred word. Father, we thank you, Father, for uh, blessing us uh, with such a great salvation. Father, we look to you, Lord, as we continue to study the gospel. We look to you, Father, to be our teacher and our guide to lead us and teach us. Father, it is your your voice that we need to hear, not a voice of a man. We need to hear from you, Father. Speak to us, O Lord. By way of your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. The word I want to speak to this morning is really a single word. It's the word guaranteed. What do you think of when you hear the word guaranteed? Uh, I already see there's a couple of smiles. Uh, you might think of that. It's hard not to think of the advertising industry, isn't it? Uh, guaranteed, yeah, right, sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that's abused, isn't it? Um, but all that set aside, it's still a very powerful word. Guaranteed is a very strong word. You, the dictionary tells us that uh, guaranteed means uh, something that ensures a particular outcome. Something that ensures a particular outcome. Um, if it is truly guaranteed, that's a, that's a strong statement, isn't it? A very strong statement. 
uh, we, we might, with a word, we might say guaranteed means sure, or with a word, we might say guaranteed means certain. Sure, certain, guaranteed. Well, last week we, we began to work our way through uh, chapter 4, at least the, uh, with verse 13, we began to work through the second half of chapter 4. And we came to the promise, if you will, the word promise. And you'll recall last week that I had mentioned that, that the idea of a promise plays a big part uh, in Romans chapter 4 from this point on. If you, if, you just, if you just very quickly read through the verses, you'll discover the word appears very often in many of the verses. And even when the word promise doesn't appear, there's an allusion uh, to a promise uh, uh, that is certainly present. And last week, we kind of pulled off alongside of the road just to take in the promise that Paul has in mind. He says, for the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, uh, that namely that he would be heir of the world. We spent some time developing that. We went back into the Genesis narratives of Genesis 12, 13, 15, 18, 22. And there we saw really there were primary three really kind of three categories, if you will, uh, of the promise that was given to Abraham. You know, it's just, uh, Abraham is told to leave his homeland, right? And go where? Uh, to a land that God uh, would show him. So we see the land is, a, is certainly a part of this promise. And even in chapter 13, where uh, Abraham and Lot separate, Abraham actually uh, makes his way into the land of Canaan and there God shows him the land of Canaan. He basically says, here, you know, look to the south, look to the north, look to the east, look to the west. Walk it off. This is the land that uh, that I am giving to you. It's the land that Israel would uh, sometime in the future receive as the promised land. So we have the idea of land. Uh, Abraham is 75 years old when he is called. Uh, at this point, he's, he still has not had any children, biological children. Uh, many of us can relate to, some of us could relate to what a struggle that might be. And uh, uh, God comes to Abraham and says, listen, I'm going to make you as numerous as the stars. Uh, your descendants are going to be like the dust of the earth. If you can count the dust particles, so will you be able to count your descendants. I'm going to make many nations out of you. So we have this idea of descendants, if you will. Uh, descendants, land, descendants. And then there's another category. We'll just call it blessing uh, because God says to Abraham, he says, listen, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. And he says it this way. He says, in you, Abraham, all of the families of the world will be blessed. Uh, in your offspring, if you will, all of the families of the world will be blessed. And another place we saw in Genesis 18, it's uh, uh, in you many nations will be blessed. Uh, again, in Genesis 22, that promise is given. It's given again to uh, Isaac in Genesis 26, and it's given to Jacob in, in Genesis 28. Uh, so we, we see this idea of blessing. And of course, we know how God makes good on that promise. Uh, he makes good on that promise. And, and, you know, the answer when you're in Sunday school and the Sunday school teacher asks you, okay, a question. Uh, if you answer the question by saying Jesus, you've got a good shot of getting it right, right? Uh, how does he, uh, how does God bless uh, uh, or how does he fulfill the promise that Abraham would be a blessing to all the families of the world? It's through Jesus. And so if you answer with Jesus, you get the question right, don't you? 
uh, much of the time. Uh, it is through Christ. Christ, uh, Galatians teaches us that Christ is uh, the offspring. We can, we can, offspring can be confusing to us until we understand that sometimes it's used in the singular, sometimes it's used in the plural. And you can sort it out this way. It's the way I sort it out is that when it's used in the singular, that through Abraham's offspring in the singular, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. It's speaking of Christ. It is through Christ. But sometimes offspring is used plural and uh, in the same kind of light. Well, what's that mean? That means all who are in Christ, if you will. All who are in Christ. If you look at uh, Romans 4.13, notice it says the promise to, uh, is to Abraham and it is to his offspring. We looked at that as well last week, didn't we? Uh, and namely, what this is pointing to, uh, we could say in the singular, it's a promise to Christ, isn't it? But in the plural, all who are in Christ, we learn from the New Testament, are heirs with Christ. What does Jesus do? He shares his inheritance with all who are in him. It's a magnificent truth, isn't it? And the last thing we did last week was we, we went to the book of Revelation and we looked at the new heaven and the new earth for a little while, didn't we? And what a tremendous uh, glimpse of the, of the new heaven and the new earth that we get in Revelation 21 and 22, isn't it? And what tremendous promises there are there. Now, that's where we ended last week. Now, I didn't say a whole lot about how we get this promise. How do we receive this promise? That's really important. And that's, that's what I want to take up this morning. How do we receive this great promise? Well, go back to Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world uh, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So we learn here that the promise cannot come uh, through the law. And there's something here I want to share with you. It's, it's something that, I've, that, I, that I have learned from reading John Stott's commentary on these verses. John Stott, if you, if you haven't ever read any of John Stott's stuff, uh, I, I encourage it highly to you. He was a, just a tremendous communicator of God's truth. And I, I'll give you an example. Uh, in verses, commenting on verses 13, 14, and 15, and even part of verse 16, he says what we have here is the logic of language. Now, that sounds kind of complicated, but it's not. He says we have the logic of language. And what John Stott was referring to is, okay, on one side we have, we have law, if you will, the promise to Abraham and his offspring. It did not come through the law. Uh, okay, and then in verse 14, uh, we have for the adherence of the law. Okay, we have the word law again. Verse 15, the law brings wrath. Okay, we have this word wrath, uh, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. And <clears throat> what Stott's doing is he's making columns, if you will. Two different categories of words. Uh, law, wrath, transgression. That's the first category. Okay. Now, there's a second category, and that category would be promise. Okay, For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring uh, doesn't come through the law, comes through faith. So we'd have promise, um, we'd have faith. Uh, for it is, if, verse 14, for it is, if it is the adherence of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. Uh, for the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. Verse 16 
That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. So we see there's a second category of words here is what Stott's saying. And he's saying, okay, separate these categories. We have law, wrath, transgression, one category. We have uh, promise, grace, uh, faith, another category. Okay. Now, let's think about the logic of language. Law language goes like this, Stott says. It goes, you shall or you shall not. Let's think that through for a minute. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, you shall not make an idol. Uh, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Uh, you shall uh, honor the Sabbath day and, and uh, keep it holy. Uh, you shall honor your uh, mother and your father. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Uh, and etc. etc. Right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's law language, right? You shall, you shall not. And Stott says law language demands our obedience. It demands our obedience. That's the first category. Now, the second category is what he calls promise language. I will. I will gather you from all of the nations. I will sprinkle you and you shall be clean. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. Cause you to love my law and my commandments. Come to me, you who are heavy or you who are weak and heavy laden. And I will what? Give you rest. You see, that's promise language. Now, promise language demands our faith, doesn't it? And you see, these are two separate categories. We need to be careful that we don't mix these up. As long as we keep these in separate categories is what Stott is saying. So the promise, you see, promise, it can't come by obedience. It, it's, 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 promise is in a whole other category, you see. So promise, promise comes by faith. Now, Paul is arguing for that. The, pro, the promise does not come through the law, but comes through the righteousness of faith. And he argues very forcefully in verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, if you look there with me, for if it is the inheritance of the law who are to be heirs, faith is known, the promise is... A, is void. In other words, if it is through obedience uh, that we inherit this great promise of the new heaven and the new earth and eternal salvation, then the promise is void. Uh, verse 15 fleshes it out even further. Paul says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That perhaps is a confusing sentence maybe for some. It used to confuse me quite a bit. And I'll tell you how... Uh, uh, I'll tell you what happened to me that really helped me understand this. Uh, for the longest time, I took the word transgression as being exactly equivalent to the word sin. And now, transgression is indeed a sin, 
But a transgression is a little bit different. Uh, it's a certain type of sin. A, a transgression actually is a is a violation of a positive command, if you will. Let me give you. Let me flesh this out with a an illustration. You know, when we were kids, uh, if we got into something we shouldn't have gotten into, uh, we we probably could have gotten into trouble for doing that, and probably often we did. But that's a different kind of thing than getting into something that your parents told you not to get into. If we were explicitly told not to get into something and then we got into it anyway, we were in more trouble than if we just got into something uh, without the positive command, you see. Uh, getting into something that we shouldn't have gotten into, uh, maybe we maybe we knew better, maybe we didn't know better, we probably did, we got into it. That gets us into a little bit of trouble. But when our parents tell us, listen, you're not to get into these cupboards, you're not to get in there. And we go ahead and do it anyway. We now transgress. Because we are violating a positive command. Our guilt is intensified, isn't it? We're more guilty in the second scenario than we are in the first scenario. Now, what Paul is saying, he's not saying that the law is bad. It sounds like that. He says the law brings wrath. Why does the law bring wrath? Because the law is given to a bunch of people that can't keep it. We can't keep the law. So when you give a bunch of positive commands to a group of people that can't keep the law, what is going to happen? Our guilt is going to intensify. Therefore, Paul says the law brings wrath. That's what's going to happen. And he's arguing very forcefully here. Uh, it brings wrath because we can't keep it. So the promise cannot come by way of, of, of the law. The promise must come by faith. Now, let me speak for a few minutes to what I will call the head and the heart. Uh, the head and the heart. Uh, I think for the most part, most of us come in here and we understand we can't get the promise by obedience. We know that. We hear that all the time. And you don't have to be in a place like this for very long to pick that kind of stuff up and say, oh, no, I know it's all by faith. It's it's not by works. And we can pick that up and we can answer the questions all right. But in, in practicality, we actually distort this all the time in two ways. We distort it in, with legalism and we distort it with what I'll call lawlessness. Sometimes you'll hear it called antinomianism, but let me just use lawlessness for right now. Legalism and lawlessness. What is legalism? If you turn with me to Romans 10, just a couple of pages downstream to Romans 10 and verse 3, for the sake of context, uh, I'll read verses 1 and 2. Uh, Paul says, Brothers, my hearts and desire or my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is uh, Paul's fellow Jews, my heart's, and desire, uh, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, and listen to this phrase here, and seeking to establish what? Their own. This is legalism. It's when we seek to establish our own righteousness. And we do this in all kinds of subtle ways. Let me give you an example. Uh, we could spend a lot of time on this, but I'm just going to give you one subtle little example 
uh, almost 10 years ago now, uh, Tammy and I, was, we were planning the, the, uh, the, the planting of this church. Uh, ONA sent Tammy and I down to RTS, to Reform Theological Seminary in Aveda, Florida, to study church planting. And while we were there, the very first class that we attended uh, was led by Dr. Stephen Shoulders. And one of the first things that he said, now the whole room's full of church planners and prospective church planners. And the very first thing that he said, he looked around at the room and he said, how many of you believe God is scowling at you? And the room fell to a creepy silence. Now, there's a few reasons that we may believe that God is scowling at us. You know, if we're living and delighting in sin that we know to be wrong, we can come to that conclusion. And that is not what Dr. Childers was talking about, nor is that what I'm talking about right now. What he was talking about was this performance-based thinking trying to establish our own righteousness. And it goes like this. Why would we think God is, is scowling at us? Well, because we haven't been performing uh, good enough. We haven't been performing for him up to a certain standard. Uh, conversely, if we could perform up to a certain standard, then he would be smiling at us. But we realize we're not performing up to this certain standard. Therefore, he must be scowling at us. And the whole thing about it is what standard do we have set up in our minds to come to these conclusions with anyway? It's a standard that we imagine and make up for ourselves, isn't it? You know, if I could be reading my Bible every day like I'm supposed to make, doing all these things, and we could check off all this list, then God would be very happy with me. But fact is, I'm not. And therefore, he's really probably scowling at me. So that's a very subtle way we fall into legalism without even knowing it. Another thing that we can fall into and twist and turn is, is lawlessness. Um, lawlessness. We can read these verses, like especially verse 14 and verse 15. Verse 15, for the law brings wrath. You know, we can read that and say, boy, the law brings wrath. And, you know, uh, um, boy, I, I can't keep the law. And when you give me the law, all it does is make me more guilty. This law thing sounds like something I ought to better stay away from. Right? Does that make sense? And we'll get that in our heads and therefore we'll become lawless. And we'll, we'll, we'll abuse passages to say, well, you're no longer under the law, but you're under grace. And we say, well, we're under grace. We're not under the law. Well, uh, that's to fall into a, another category. And quite frankly, you realize something, something that um, maybe some of us realize and we don't realize. Some of those who are most susceptible to fall into lawlessness are those who have dwelt for a long time in legalism. Because you dwell for a long time in the legalism and 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 you, you swerve. You swerve from that all the way across the road to uh, lawlessness. It's, uh, as Christians saved by Christ's grace, do you think that he saves us so that we can become lawless? To be lawless is to be criminal, isn't it? Uh, the Old West, you know, when I think of lawlessness, I think of the Old West, you know. Uh, that's lawlessness, you know, an outlaw. Uh, he is one who is lawless. Saving faith does not create disdain in our hearts for God's law. 
Saving faith does the exact opposite. The psalmist in Psalm 119, I think it's verse 97. He says, oh, how I love your law. That's the language of faith. And it's in the other category, you see. It's in the promise category. You see, that's how we embrace the law in the promise category. It's from the inside out, not the outside in. God works, he changes our hearts. I will sprinkle you, you will be clean. I will put my spirit in you. You shall love my law. You see, so faith doesn't, faith doesn't nullify the law. In fact, it, it upholds it, doesn't it? Many ways it upholds it. And that brings me to the point that I really want to make. And that is the word guarantee. Look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be what? If you're looking at the ESV, you're reading the word guarantee. But if you're looking at other translations, you might have the word sure. You may even have the word certain. They can be guaranteed. If this thing was based on performance, I'll tell you what could be guaranteed. What could be guaranteed is that none of us would ever receive it. That's what could be guaranteed. But this thing rests on grace. And because it rests on grace, it can be guaranteed. Why? Because it rests on the accomplishments of Christ. It rests on the merits of Christ. It rests in the fact that our Father can give us good gifts. He can, he can, our Father can hand us salvation. And if He does, it's guaranteed. How do we take the salvation that our Father hands us? We take it with the hand of faith. It's the hand of faith. You know, like the lights. You know, I use this, the, 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 the illustration of the lights. You know, the, some of these posts here are just to support these lights. But inside these pipes, there are wires that are hooking up these lights. We all know that. And that wire, you've heard me say this, it goes back to the power company. The wire doesn't make the lights light up. It's the power company that makes the lights light up. But if there's no wiring, there's no life. There's no light, is there? In fact, when we turn the switch off, all we're doing is interrupting that wire. We're, we're cutting it off. And then the light goes out. Faith is, is like the wire. It's the conduit. It's the pipe, if you will, which uh, connects us to Christ who gives us life. And when God gives us the gift of faith, if you have faith this morning, it's because he's given it to you. If God gives us the gift of faith, it's guaranteed. Guaranteed. Isn't that wonderful? There's a lot of people out there that don't understand that. There's a lot of people out there that wonder, am I going to go to heaven? And, and a, there's a lot of people out there who are actually dwelling in true saving faith that are wondering these things. And that's what makes verse 16 so powerful. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Grace is completely unmerited. 
and be what? Guaranteed. Guaranteed. I like that word, guaranteed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we so thank you and praise you, Father, for the fact that the promise is guaranteed to all who embrace the promise with faith and a faith that you give us. Father, it is faith and repentance that is a gift from you, Father, and we, we cannot look upon our Lord Jesus Christ and not repent of our sin, not turn from our sin. We recognize faith and repentance to be two different things, Father, but we realize that uh, they could never be separated. And they are gifts. It's grace. You give us grace. And the promise is guaranteed. And Father, we thank you and praise you, Father, uh, for this wonderful guarantee that we have in Christ Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen and amen.